Pettit, and I'm a girl camper. I go places and I do things in my Liberty Outdoors lightweight towable trailers. Along the way, I meet many interesting people traveling the back roads, and I want to share their stories with you. We will talk about the qualities of what makes a girl camper and how you can be a girl camper too. The girl campers are having a party, and you're invited. Stay tuned while I share what's happening on the back roads of America the Beautiful. Welcome, I'm Janine Pettit, girl camping ambassador, blogger, adventurist, and podcaster. And this is a mini episode of the Girl Camper Podcast. We're on sabbatical for the month of September, but we're going to return in October with our regular full-length program. In the meantime, though, I'm coming to you with a mini-podcast and sharing a great article by Jason Stevenson, author of The Complete Idiot's Guide to Backpacking and Hiking. Now, I got into a little trouble, and I do mean a little, hiking this summer in Colorado when I went too far in an altitude I was not yet acclimated to, and then I had to make the whole family stop and wait for me because we were there with my in-laws and the nieces and the nephews and the grandbabies, and everybody had to wait for Aunt Janine. I just had a really hard time getting my breath. They all lived there, so it didn't seem to bother them, and Eventually, my asthma kicked in, and my brother-in-law had to go back and get the car, and I had to sit the rest of the hike out. So, I went online, and I was searching for tips on hiking in high altitudes when I came across this article by Jason that I really, really like. He wrote it for Backpacker Magazine, and it was titled, The Top 10 Beginner Hiker Blunders. I thought we could all benefit from these. Some of them are really common sense, but there were some things in there that I really enjoyed reading for the first time, and I'm paraphrasing here when I'm talking about this article. So, Jason's number one, don't do this for beginning hikers, is one of the obvious ones. Don't wear denim. So we all know that adage, cotton kills, and it does so because cotton retains moisture. Instead of wicking it away the way these new polyester fabrics do and the old school wool things do, they take moisture away from you, but cotton keeps moisture close to you, and that actually steals your body heat, and it takes a long, long um, time to dry. So if you hit the end of the day and your clothes are still wet and night sets in, you are really susceptible to hyperthermia. So it literally does kill. So first thing he says, buy good moisture wicking hiking gear. Okay, moving on. The number two things he sees that new hikers do Buying your tent or sleeping bag at Walmart or any other one of the big box-like stores, Jason suggests you buy your granola, your beef jerky, and your protein canisters there, but go to a big specialty outdoor store with really reputable and reliable brands for the gear that matters the most. These would be things like your footwear, your rain gear, your sleeping bags, and your tent. You know, all those things that kind of keep you comfortable in a life. <laughs> so, um, as the mother of an AT hiker, I can tell you this. 
that when my son threw hiked the Appalachian Trail, he spent a lot of money, and I mean a lot, three or four hundred dollars on a sleeping bag and on really good hiking boots. I can't remember what he spent on the boots, but they were really good hiking boots. One of the things he did not spend a lot of money on, and it was a regret, was the actual backpack itself. He just used one that he had been using. It wasn't very expensive, maybe a hundred or a hundred and fifty dollar aluminum frame bag. But now he was a through hiker, and that bag weighed about thirty five pounds with everything in it. He was trying to keep it under forty, and he really really wanted it under 40. So he got it down to 35, which is, I think, the going weight for a through hiker, especially in an experienced one. I mean, they do have slack packers and they, they carry almost nothing, but these are very experienced hikers. So he didn't spend a lot of money on that. Halfway through the hike, the aluminum frame broke in half and started gouging into his back. So he was actually about nine miles from the nearest road. There was no way he was able to assemble that thing on his back or rig it without the metal frame um, stabbing him in the back. So he actually ended up carrying it out in front of him with his arms for like nine miles. So 35 pounds out in front of you for nine miles, it was a real ordeal. So spend some money on those kind of things that are really going to matter. Okay, number three on Jason's list, hiking a trail with a road map. So he says, and I think this is an easy thing to agree with, the map that helps you find the trailhead parking lot isn't necessarily the map to use to navigate the trail. Now, according to Stevenson, there's a gold standard, and that is a detailed topographical map, which is called a quad. These are for backcountry hikers, and they're really overkill for day hikers. Day hikers would be in the national parks, in the local hiking things that, in the hikes, the trails rather, that people go on all the time. You can get really decent maps for those trails at bookstores, at visitor centers. Those maps are going to have marked things like the rivers, the ridges, and the peaks. They're going to tell you how long a trail is, um, how far um, in between places where you might be able to get water. So, really you could get decent detailed maps for very local hikes. Another thing you can do is you can go to backpacker.com. So they have a lot of really well-known hikes listed on their website and you can just go into their print and go weekend planner section so you can Pick a hike. It'll have a checklist on there of things that you might want to bring, driving directions, waypoints, and you print that and just throw it in your backpack and take it with you. Also, I got to tell you that the National Parks app on um, NPS app for um, iPhones, those have very, very nice detailed maps on really most hikes well, all of the hikes in the park. But one of the things I really like about those is it will literally say things like, at the left-hand turn, go 150 feet, and there's a welded-to-the-ground garbage can there. Look directly to your left, and you'll see the beginning of the trail. I mean, they are really, really detailed. In fact, the ones for Shenandoah National Park, some of those trailheads are kind of hard to find, and they were 
easier to find with the National Parks app than they were with the little book we got there. So the um, National Parks app is a good thing for that too. Okay, moving on, number four, mistake that rookie hikers make. Packing a first aid kit as if you're landing on Omaha Beach. Jason's words, I love it. Most first-time hikers either forget a first aid kit altogether or they pack an entire pharmacy. So a first aid kit should be appropriate to your hike, the size of your group, and your medical knowledge, he says. Don't pack obscure things that you're unlikely to use. An example he cited was a suture kit. So there are people who are really trained, um, really serious hikers, and they're trained for really serious emergencies very far into the woods where there is no um, access to telephones or anything like that. Most of those hikers have an emergency button, but there are hikers who have the kind of medical training or emergency aid training where they could literally suture a wound. That's not most of us. And people have silly things in their first aid kit, like a suture kit, that they'll never use. And he suggests, instead of things like that, that you include extra bandages, painkillers, things that you might actually use. Now, I thought this was interesting just to know what he thought the basic supplies in a first aid kit should be that a day hiker or a hiker that is going to be hiking in and camping for four or five days on the trail. So various sizes of adhesive bandages, medical or duct tape, moleskin, sterile gauze, ibuprofen, Benadryl, antibiotic ointment, and alcohol wipes. Now, I would add to that that you would also want to think about your own medical condition. Like, I never go anywhere without an EpiPen. I have one with me wherever I go. I'm not going to be eating shellfish on the trail, but if you were a person allergic to bee stings or anything, that is something you should have with you all the time. Another note here, um, moleskin. I don't know why, but I, I never heard of moleskin. I had to look up moleskin. So it is basically a really heavy woven fabric, and it's um, kind of got a nap on one side, and it's soft against your skin, and it sticks to you. So that is if you developed really bad blisters when you were hiking, you would just put this moleskin over the blister, and it protects it and allows you to keep hiking. So I ordered some moleskin for my first aid kit because I did not have anything like that. Okay, number five. Thinking lightning can't strike me because I'm not carrying anything metallic. So Jason says you can be struck by lightning while hiking. Lightning is attracted to the tallest object around it. So if you were a hiker and you were walking across a field um, if you if you were leaning against a tree and a lightning storm came up, a thunderstorm, it's going to strike out at the tallest thing there, so you would be in danger. Now, also, lightning can strike a target from as far as 10 miles away. A storm that's 10 miles away can produce a lightning strike that can go that far. So he advises, if you were hiking across a field or someplace in the woods and a sudden storm came up that you get as deep into the forest as you can. 
if you're like in the rolling hills of Virginia, go down to the bottom of that rolling hill, get low, get in a ravine or get in a gully. In other words, lay low people. Now, if you're in an open field, just try to get out of it. Um, my son told us this interesting story about when he was hiking the AT and he was in New Hampshire and he had about two or three other hikers with him and he had his dog with him and the trees started really blowing. They could see the open sky and the lightning was, a finger lightning was coming down. A really bad storm came up and they kind of climbed up a hill into the woods. Uh, They wanted to get off the open plain. They wanted to get up and there was a little, um, not ravine, but a side of a hill, and they kind of scooted up the side of the hill and were sitting on the side of that mountain when the lightning struck the mountain, maybe a hundred yards or whatever down. But anyway, he said it shook them. Um, So (laughs) they were very lucky. Our dog has absolutely never been the same. If there's thunder or fireworks or anything, that dog is terrified. (laughs) So they were very lucky with that. I don't know if they did the right thing in that case, but if it comes up, you've got to try to seek some kind of shelter. Okay, number six, going ultralight without ultralight experience. So when I was talking earlier about the backpack and how heavy it is, there are those who are called ultralight hikers. In the AT world, they call this slack packing, and you're just carrying the minimum of stuff. And Jason advises that this is for really experienced hikers. The advantage being is the less weight you have to slip around, uh, you know, the quicker you can hike and all that. But when you lessen your pack to this degree, you actually shrink your safety net. So you have fewer backup provisions that if anything serious goes wrong, you don't have extra food. If you fall in a river, you don't have extra clothes. So those are the kind of things that could can go wrong in a situation like that. And he says, the more experience you have backcountry backpacking, the less less likely you are to have a mishap to begin with. But also the more experienced you are, the more likely you are able to improvise a solution in the event that you do have one. And he suggests that beginner hikers take all the gear they need with them, reducing the risk of something happening, and they need to build up those skills before they start emptying stuff out of their pack. So that's a rookie mistake. Number seven, wearing boots fresh from the box. So Jason suggests, and he quotes this proverb, a hiking proverb, if your feet are happy, the rest of you is happy. So neither you or your feet are going to be happy if you begin your trek in an untested pair of boots. And I know this, whenever I have bought new hiking boots, I'm wearing them around the house. I'm using them as much as possible. Any blisters or calluses that are going to form or spots that are going to rub, I'm going to find that out ahead of time before I go because nothing ruins a trip like your feet. I mean, you really can't function when your feet are swollen and hurt and all of those things. So he says to do what I just told you I did, start wearing those to mow the lawn. Start wearing those um, when you're running your errands. Get as much miles on them around the house and around your town that you can get in. When you feel a rub or something in that shoe, treat it with bandages. Try changing out your socks until you can get those comfortable. 
Now, if you wear the kind of hiking shoes that are really like an athletic shoe, which is what I have, I have a pair of Cabela's hiking boots, which are really like sneakers, and there was literally uh, like a two-day breaking in period. They felt great from the very beginning. You're going to do better with those, but if you are going to be wearing the high top or leather hiking boots, you've really got to break those in ahead of time. He also suggests that you buy your shoes a half size bigger than you normally wear. For most people, halfway through the day and into that hike, your feet are going to go up by at least a half a size and maybe a whole size. So buy the shoes ahead of time, wear them ahead of time, figure out um, what kind of bandages or socks you should be wearing to make them the most comfortable and buy them a half a size bigger. Okay, number eight, starting too late in the day. So you know that whole thing, the best laid plans of mice and men. You're sitting up around the campfire at night and you're going, hey, we're all going hiking tomorrow. This is going to be great. Everybody meet here at eight o'clock and you show up at eight o'clock and nobody's there. When you start that um, hike later in the day, you're going to have to shorten the hike or get out your book and look for a cutoff trail or a short shortcut to that trail. He says, absolutely avoid that lure of a cross-country shortcut. Don't do that thing. Don't look at a map and think, I think we could cut across this field and get there. He thinks the better thing to do is to just keep moving. And he said, even if you end up finishing the hike with a headlamp on before you get to the trailhead, it's better to do that than to go off-road. That's the number one rule in hiking. You know, just do not go off the trail. So he was recounting a story in which he started four hours late on a 10-mile hike in New Hampshire, and then he had a little trouble navigating the trail in the map. He took some wrong turns, got back on trap, ended up at the trailhead at midnight with his headlamp on. So he knows what he's talking about there. Don't get off that trail. Just keep moving. All right, number nine, ignoring the weather forecast. So before every trip, he suggests you check the NOAA, N-O-A-A.gov, the NOAA, I have this app, website. They use a Google Map interface that is much more accurate for the five-day forecast. So if you're going five days out and you're going to be sleeping in and hiking um, with your tent, staying overnight, this, he feels, as an experienced hiker that he is, gives you the best possible detailed forecast. He told a story in the article about um, using this app And seeing that, you know, several days into his trip, there was going to be this middle-of-the-night thunderstorm. And sure enough, he knew about it. He knew it was coming. Because then you often don't have Wi-Fi when you're out there. So it's important to have that forecast before you head out and know what you're heading into. Sure sure enough, at 1 o'clock in the morning, he gets woken up by pounding thunder. But he knew ahead of time. So he got off that trail. wasn't raining then chose a sheltered campsite, pitched his tent away from lone trees or any dangling branches, and tightened down all the guy lines on his rain fly. So he survived the storm and actually enjoyed the display of sound and light there. (laughs) All right, last one, number 10. I thought this was kind of interesting because we just talked last week about the Leave No Trace program. So number 10 was skimping on the Leave No Trace. So 
everybody knows that there are at least three principles. I didn't know there were seven until last week when um, when Gail Babel came on and talked about them. So we all know those three. Carry out the trash, keep away from wildlife, and minimize the impact of a campfire. But the finer points of the leave no trace are a little harder to carry out. They are packing out your toilet paper. Gail talked last week about burying it, but there are really some people who don't even do that. Um, They pack up the toilet paper. They use, they put it in a plastic bag or a Ziploc, and they take it out with them and throw it out when they get home. Um, Strain all the food bits off of your dishes. So if you have a little canteen and you're eating something and there's little food bits, even those little tiny food bits, you are not supposed to throw away. You're supposed to eat them or take them very far away from the campsite. Um, Use biodegradable soap. So those are some great things that he gave us. I enjoyed this article so much. I'm going to put a link in it on the show notes, but maybe you want to uh, buy Jason's book. It looks like a great thing for anyone wanting to know more about hiking to get familiar with. So that's our show this week, everybody. I'll see you next week. Have a good week. Happy trails. Happy trails.